This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, November 24th, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. As we head into Thanksgiving weekend, it's worth taking stock of the year so far. David Bowes, Executive Vice President of the Cato Institute, offered his perspective on recent events at Cato Club 200 at the end of September. In the speech, Bowes describes the contemporary challenges to liberty, the sprawling government vision that President Obama brought with him into the White House, and the bubbling up of popular resentment at government workers. This is a longer-than-normal podcast for those of you on the road this holiday weekend. Enjoy. These have been very exciting times in politics lately. Whatever side of the big issues you're on, there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of energy. There are a lot of things happening. And I'm sure you all remember that from 2006 to 2008, all the energy in American politics was on the left. It was all focused on get Bush out, get the Republicans out. Much more of a focus, I think, on getting the Republicans out of office than getting any particular Democrat in. Nevertheless, uh, they did find a Democrat who excited a lot of people, who won more votes than any Democratic candidate had since Lyndon Johnson. And Barack Obama swept in on a wave of enthusiasm after a hard-fought election. You had kind of an era of good feeling. People found him young, cool, a symbol of America's uh, getting past its racial problems, all of that. Um, He swept in on a wave of enthusiasm. He passed this huge economic stimulus bill within a month of taking office, and From the time of the financial crisis to the Obama victory up to that early policy victory, pundits were all over newspapers and TV declaring it's the end of the Reagan revolution, maybe it's the end of American capitalism, maybe even specifically it's the end of libertarianism. Bill Clinton declared that we had ushered in a new era of progressive politics that might last 40 years. And then something changed all of a sudden. Suddenly, around February of 2009, around the week that the stimulus passed, suddenly the energy in American politics was on the right, and specifically on the free market right. The bill still passed, but the balance of energy and enthusiasm in American politics had changed. And it might even have started with the Cato Institute's full-page ads against the stimulus with 200 economists saying this stimulus is a bad idea. The ads... The ads, I think, sent a signal to small government supporters that after they had slumbered for the eight years of the Bush administration and they had cowered in terror for the six months of the financial crisis and the Obama victory, it was time to get up off the campus, uh, canvas, stand up again, start fighting back, and these ads were a signal that that's what we were doing. They didn't stop the stimulus, but they did sort of revive the small government movement. And about a week after the ads, Rick Santelli made his call for a Tea Party. Tea Party started popping up everywhere, and that became the big political story of 2009. And there was a journalist who wrote a few months later, 
The philosophical casualty of the Great Recession was supposed to be libertarianism, but signs to the contrary are thriving. Americans are increasingly opposed to activist government programs. The most significant social movement of 2009, the Tea Party protests, grew out of that opposition. The Obama administration brought with it ambitions of a resurgence of FDR and LBJ's active state liberalism, and with it, Obama has revived the enduring American challenge to the state. Sales of Atlas Shrugged and the Road to Serfdom soared. The Road to Serfdom has sold over 100,000 copies so far this year. That's up from about 15,000 last year, which was also significantly up from previous years. Polls right now show a lot of opposition to activist government. People are opposed to the health care bill. People are opposed to the Democrats who are giving us the health care bill. One of the key questions that pollsters ask from time to time is, generally speaking, do you prefer a smaller government with fewer services or a larger government with more services? The last time the Washington Post asked that poll this summer, the margin was 20 points in favor of smaller government. And when you ask a more accurate question, do you prefer smaller government with fewer services and lower taxes to a more active government? And I note that the, the pollster who does this most often doesn't say larger government. He says a more active government, which I think is a more positive term for the other side. A more active government with more services and higher taxes, the margin goes from 20 points to 40 points. By 66 to 22 percent, people say, I prefer the smaller government in that case. But that is all politics and political attitudes can change. And what's important is to develop and promote the principles of liberty and limited government. And for that task, it's up to us. We can't count on really any of the media. We can't count on the politicians. We can't count on very many of the organizations that do in some ways fight bigger government. It's up to us to maintain those core principles and see to it that people remember those ideas. So it's important to start by asking what it is we stand for. And I like the term that Adam Smith used, the simple system of natural liberty. Because there's a sense in what, which what we're asking for is not anything complicated. It's not a complicated system. It's not an ideology. It's the simple system of natural liberty. Let people alone. Let them act the way they choose within broad rules about not hurting other people, and you get the simple system of natural liberty. Libertarian philosophers like to say a little more precisely, people, no one has the right to initiate aggression against the person or property of another. That's a good, more accurate term, but a little more complex. But the important point is to remember it's not just about utilitarianism, it's not just about better outcomes, it's not just about more economic growth, although that's important, and it's important to remember that the real importance of economic growth, I'm supposed to do questions on the Encyclopedia Britannica website, and I just got the questions a few minutes ago, and one of them is, well, capitalism is a system where some prosper and others thrive. Should the government do anything to help the people who don't thrive? Well, it's important to remember that the point of economic growth is not to make Bill Gates richer. The importance of economic growth is that everybody 
middle class people, working class people, poor people are better off because there is economic growth. So it's important to remember that. Nevertheless, in my view, that's not what we're fundamentally about. Not economics, not economic growth, but liberty and limited government. The fundamental right of every person to live the way he chooses, to pursue happiness in his own way. Just before he died, I had the opportunity to go to a small lunch with Bob Novak, who had just written an autobiography about his 50 years in journalism. And one of the things I remember he said in that lunch was that when he gets a chance to give commencement addresses, and he pointed out bitterly he doesn't get invited to give nearly as many commencement addresses as liberal journalists do, nevertheless, he'd given a few, and he says, I always tell the kids, always love your country, but never trust your government. And I think that's a good message for those of us who do love living in this country, but want to remember not to trust our government. There was a book a few years ago by Gary Wills called A Necessary Evil, A History of American Distrust of Government. And Gary Wills, in 300 pages, just couldn't understand why Americans, from Sam Adams to the NRA, and if he were writing it today, he'd say to the Tea Party, fear the concentration of power. Because to him, more power in government would mean more ability to do all manner of good things. So why are people afraid of that? He really didn't seem to understand it. He says the Americans are paranoid, starting with the Boston Tea Party itself. The Tea Act actually made the tea cheaper. So what were they complaining about? But of course, the Sons of Liberty did what we should always do. They turned to first principles and to history as their guides. Their principles told them that the British had no right to tax the colonies, even at a lower official rate. And their reading of history told them that power is always a threat to liberty and must always be watched closely. And that's why they threw the tea in the harbor, and that's why Americans to this day continue not to trust the concentration of power. So I'm supposed to talk today about the challenge to liberty, and I couldn't narrow it down to one, so I have several challenges to liberty that I want to talk about. Number one, I'm going to say, is Anger is not enough. People are legitimately angry at this government. And if you do polls these days, you say, are you angry at the government? People say yes. Anger is not enough. You've got to have understanding as well. You've got to understand how you could fix these things, what it is we should have instead of the system of government we have today, and how you get from here to there. And hopefully people are starting to get that. My friend Jonathan Rausch wrote a really good article in National Journal recently about the Tea Party movement. And he specifically was applying uh, the idea uh, that's in a new book called The Spider and the Starfish. And the idea is that a starfish doesn't have a central nervous system. It, it can regenerate. Each time it loses one of its legs, it can regenerate. And so he was saying the Tea Party movement is not like, let's say, the NRA, which has a central headquarters. It makes decisions and sends out orders. The Tea Party is like a starfish. 
it has many different people making decisions, and if you cut off one, it can regenerate. And so one of the things he says in there is, Tea, parties, tea partiers say, if you think moving votes and passing bills are what they are really all about, you have not taken the full measure of their ambition. No, the real point is to change the country's political culture, bending it back toward the self-reliant, liberty-guarding instincts of the founder's era. And they point out, if you just win an election, but you don't understand why, and the people who get in don't understand, then you'll have to do the whole process all over again. What you want to do is change the political culture. It's not just about anger. It's about creating a sounder culture in which politicians will operate. And that brings us to another challenge. You can't build a bigger house by taking bricks out of the foundation in order to build the addition. If you take bricks out of the foundation, the house may stand for a while, maybe even a long time, but it will eventually fall down. And similarly, when you take out the principles that sustain our freedom and our prosperity and our civilization, eventually you threaten that foundation. Our republic cannot be taken for granted. It can endure a lot, and Lord knows we've demonstrated that. But there is a limit. Herbert Spencer pointed this out about 100 years ago. He said people always want to say, yes, yes, I agree with that principle, but in this case, we need to make an exception. And he said schoolboy promises of only this once are not to be believed. Make a hole through a principle to admit a solitary exception, and on one pretense or another, so many other exceptions will by and by be thrust through after it as to render the principle utterly good for nothing. That precise point is in the lead op-ed in the New York Times today by a guy complaining that the Tea Partiers shouldn't be allowed to wrap themselves in the mantle of the Founding Fathers. But by the time you read the entire article, you say, well, it sounds like they should. Um, and one of the points he makes is that the first time Hamilton said, let's have a national bank, Madison, who wrote the Constitution, said, I have gone through the Constitution, and I can't find authorization for a national bank. And Hamilton said, well, it says necessary and proper, and, and you know, we need money, and so it seems like it would be a good idea to have a bank to produce the money. It might as well be a national bank. And Jefferson said, once you admit that exception, you have opened the way to a boundless field of power. Now, we don't want to quite concede that Jefferson was right because we want to keep fighting each extension of federal power, but he was very prescient. He recognized that as soon as you started saying, well, there's some stuff not authorized in the Constitution, but we could make an exception because it seems necessary, you've opened the gateway for everything, just like Spencer said. So what principles have we weakened in the foundation of our civilization and our prosperity? Well, the principle that the Constitution is the law of the land. The principle that government should do for the people only what they cannot do for themselves. The principle that free enterprise is a profit and loss system. The principle that every adult should stand on his own two feet. The principle that if you make choices, you pay the consequences and the corollary principle that if you're willing to pay the consequences, you ought to be free to make the choices. 
These principles have been eroded so rapidly lately that we may have lost track of just how bad it's been. But think about a few examples of exceptions we've made to the principles of limited government. President Obama fired the CEO of General Motors. These things were happening so fast, we, we forgot to notice how radical they were. The President of the United States took it upon himself to fire the chairman and CEO of a manufacturing company. This happens in Russia all the time. And it doesn't even result in a big story. It's a small story because it just confirms for us that's what Russia is, an authoritarian country where presidents fire corporate presidents all the time. But now the president of the United States is exercising that same power. Notice another thing that was a very small story in the paper two days ago. General Motors has resumed making contributions to political candidates. A company owned by the U.S. government, funded with 50 billion of your tax dollars, is writing checks to politicians, mostly Democrats, as it turns out. Um, although Eric Cantor, the uh, House Republican deputy leader, was listed among the recipients. This is, in effect, the government itself making contributions to politicians. That's not even like Russia. That's like Venezuela, I guess. Um, it's an appalling thing, and nobody has commented on it. It was a small story at the bottom of a page. President Obama says he can fire the presidents of manufacturing companies. President Bush claimed the power to arrest and incarcerate American citizens in the United States and hold them without access to a lawyer or a judge. And I thought that was awful. And now President Obama claims the power to assassinate American citizens. And this is one of these schoolboy exception things. The person we know he has targeted for assassination is a bad actor. None of us would shed a tear if he ceased to exist. But that's what a principle means. It's a rule you follow even when you don't want to. A rule you follow even when you'd prefer a different outcome. And it's a rule that requires you, if you want to make an exception, to go through certain procedures. Go to court, go to Congress, there are different ways to, to change the rules. But a principle means you're supposed to follow the rule. We still live in a largely free society, but each new intrusion on our freedom each violation of the principles of liberty and limited government makes our freedom that much more insecure. And that's why it's so essential to defend the free market and the rule of law, even in the face of popular demands to do something now, do something about this problem. Third challenge to liberty, people like free stuff. People like it when somebody gives them stuff. They're perfectly happy if it's the government to do it. And so a challenge for us is to convince them that it's not really free. Somebody pays for it. Milton Friedman and Robert Heinlein used to say there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Tanstaffel. Somebody's going to pay for that free lunch. And if that somebody isn't you, then one of the points we have to convey to people is that getting somebody else to pay for something you want is stealing. It's taking from others. 
and it's not something respectable adult people do. And then the problem, of course, is it's not just stealing from others because in the long run, we're going to be stealing from ourselves and from our children and our grandchildren. And people are going to get the bill eventually. As I wrote recently, I guess, at the Cato blog, it was a good idea to get science and democracy from the ancient Greeks. It's not such a good idea to get fiscal policy from the modern Greeks. Greece has a budget deficit of 12.7%, and we're not in that league. Ours is only 10.6%. It is the highest since 1945, but it's not quite the Greek level yet. Greece has a public debt of 113% of GDP. We're not at that level yet, although I think Jagadish probably has projections that show us getting there. The 2009 Social Security and Medicare trustees reports show the combined unfunded liability of these two programs alone has reached nearly $107 trillion. That is really an incomprehensible number. Nobody understands what it means to have an unfunded liability of $100 trillion, but it does make the Republicans promise yesterday to cut $100 billion out of the federal budget. Um, pale by comparison. A few years ago, Paul Krugman wrote, my prediction is that politicians will eventually be tempted to resolve the fiscal crisis the way irresponsible governments usually do, by printing money both to pay current bills and to inflate away debt. And as that temptation becomes obvious, interest rates will soar. Well, he wrote that when Bush was president and he could see the problem with deficit spending. but he was right. The point is still true. And one of the numbers that, that, that has the most impact on me, you know, a lot of people thought, at least until the financial crisis, that the Federal Reserve had solved the problem of inflation from the 1970s, that Greenspan had us on a nice low inflation path, that the Federal Reserve itself had solved the problem of panics and depressions that came in the 19th century. The federal, thanks to the Federal Reserve, a dollar today buys what a nickel would buy when the Federal Reserve was created. If you had put a dollar under your mattress the year the Federal Reserve was created and you pulled it out now, it would buy 5% of what it would have been worth then. And that is a system some people think is better than the barbarous relic of the gold standard or free market money or some other system that might have a hope of preserving the value of our money. So the question is, are people ready for honesty? Well, we know they're not in Greece, where the media keep telling us about anti-government protests, which turn out to be protests by government workers against any threat to their benefits and uh, uh, salaries and and retirement benefits. These should be called anti-taxpayer protests, maybe, but certainly not anti-government protests. But maybe in England, where a coalition of conservatives and liberals is at least generating scary headlines about its, in fact, fairly modest reductions in the rate of growth of government spending. And maybe in Denmark, where the government has cut from four years to two years the amount of time a person can uh, claim unemployment benefits. And maybe in Germany, where people are starting to wonder why they pay taxes so Greeks can retire at the age of 60. And there are even a few signs of hope in the U.S. of A. Remember when Ben Nelson, after he triumphantly got the Cornhusker kickback in the health care bill, went home to Nebraska and found himself booed at a pizza place? 
In Nebraska, there are still enough self-respecting citizens that they were embarrassed to be bartered and pandered the way their senator had done. Or look at Chris Christie in New Jersey. He's been looking for ways to close an $11 billion deficit that the great financial whiz John Corzine left behind. He's raising the retirement age and reworking benefit formulas for state employees. He's becoming a national cult figure for videos of town hall meetings where he says things like, unlike the United States of America, the state of New Jersey can't just print money. Or for telling a teacher at a town hall meeting that if she doesn't like the pay package that now comes with her job, then you don't have to do it. You don't like the job? Go get another job. And his job approval rating is higher than Obama's. So maybe that is some indication that people are ready to listen to a little honesty. Or look at Alaska, the state of rugged individualists who make a good living off the federal pork barrel. A lot of liberals have been saying, oh yeah, well a small number of Republicans elected Joe Miller in the primary, but when Alaskans find out that he's actually against federal pork, we'll see what happens then. Well, Joe Miller isn't backing off that. He did say this concept that we have of senators and representatives being elected to bring back the pork is the reason that we're at the point we're at. The entitlement state has driven us into insolvency. We'll see whether in fact he gets elected. Seems pretty clear in a two-way race he absolutely would. In a three-way race it may be more confusing. But if he ends up a senator from Alaska, that is going to be such a sea change. Alaska has sent nothing but pork-barreling appropriators for a generation to Congress. If they send somebody who genuinely opposes the appropriations bill in the pork barrel, that will change the climate in Congress because people will start saying, wow, even in Alaska, people have woken up to this. One of the interesting things that I think is going on in this area right now is a rising tide of concern about the cushy ride of public employees. Chris Edwards has done a lot to generate public awareness of how much more money public employees make on average than private sector employees. And there's been a lot of back and forth. The uh, director of the Office of Personnel Management has fulminated at Chris on the radio and in the Washington Post, and they've produced studies saying, well, you know, the typical private sector employee is a greeter at Walmart, and the typical public sector employee is like a scientist curing cancer, so you could hardly expect they'd make the same amount. Other people have gone back and pointed out that's not typical of either, and if you match job for job, education for education, you still see this disparity, not to mention the fact, of course, that in government you have guaranteed job security, and economists can calculate what the net present value of that is, but it's significant. I knew that the concern about public employee pensions and so on was reaching real national prominence, not when Chris Christie did his town hall meetings and got arguments on both sides, but when Saturday Night Live did a video on the Public Employee of the Year Awards. And this was a really harsh sketch. I mean, you know, this is kind of like a few Cato employees got together over beers and wrote up something that we would never say in our policy papers about public employees. It was really nasty. It was the Public Employee of the Year Awards, and it showed the huge Oscar audience applauding as these public employees came up, and it touched every element of popular resentment toward government workers. Um, 
there was a line where the, uh, the uh, MC said, people with government jobs are just like workers everywhere, except for the lifetime job security, guaranteed annual raises, early retirement on generous pensions, and full medical coverage with no deductibles, office visit fees, or co-payments. Um, and then there was an obviously young and healthy worker who had achieved retirement on full disability. And there was an award for surliest and least cooperative state employee. <laughs> there was a mention of an employee who racked up 3,200 hours a year on the job, all of it overtime. <laughs> New York school janitors who live in Florida. Employees with two current jobs and full disability. All of this is in this one sketch. An entire workday, one of the employees, one of the finalists, um, was nominated for her achievement in practicing an entire workday at the DMV without serving a single customer. No work contracts, surprisingly early closings of government offices, and finally, the winner of the award couldn't accept it because he's on break. When Saturday Night Live gets onto something like that, you figure a lot of people are talking about public employees, and so maybe, just maybe, that means Americans are waking up to the difference between the ruling class and the taxpaying class, the out-of-control government, and the problem with our failing constitutionalism. Michael Barone had a column the other day where he said, our national political culture is the founders versus the progressives, the culture of dependence versus the culture of independence, and in the final analysis, Americans will and do prefer the culture of independence. Jonathan Rausch, in the article I quoted earlier, made a similar point here where he says, one hears in the Tea Party movement echoes of leftist movements, raise consciousness, change hearts, not just votes, attack corruption in society, not just on Capitol Hill. In America, right-wing movements have tended to focus on taking over politics, left-wing ones on changing the culture. Like its leftist precursors, the Tea Party Patriots thinks of itself as a social movement, not a political one. Centerless swarms, the starfish organization, centerless swarms are bad at transactional politics, that is the give and take of legislation, but they may be pretty good at cultural reform. Well, that is what we can most devoutly hope for from the Tea Party movement, that it rallies more Americans to understand that taxpaying citizens have a common interest, the other citizens are on a different side, but that it's up to us also to agree that we're not going to Washington searching for just that one exception, the farm subsidy, the Medicare prescription drug, whatever our particular exception is. And let's hope that this will turn out to be right. Well, I could go on, but that's enough challenges for one day. So let me stop with those three challenges to liberty. But let me point out that the challenge to liberty will never end. Our children and grandchildren will fight these battles, as did our parents and grandparents. But now is a crucial time, not least because now is our time. This is the only time we can be part of this battle. When I go out and give speeches or do these uh, Encyclopedia Britannica questionnaires, I'm often asked, where's an example of a successful libertarian society? 
And I tell people the answer is easy. The United States of America, look around you. This is a country founded by libertarians on explicitly libertarian ideas and throughout American history, with obvious exceptions from slavery to Obamacare, throughout American history, largely practicing liberty and limited government a place where people could come to pursue their own happiness, to pursue their own ambition, to get ahead on their own, where they thought their job was to stand on their own two feet, where we have generally, compared to the rest of the world, not resented the rich for getting rich. We have instead aspired to get rich like they do. You may remember when George McGovern suggested the $1,000 demigrant and suggested that there be some limit on total income. And working class voters yelled at him and he mocked them and he said, what, do they think they're going to win the lottery? No, they want to live in a country where if not they, their children could achieve the success that George McGovern wanted to punish. There are two Ivy League professors, one of whom in fact is now a top aide to President Obama, who complain that libertarian ideas are, quote, astonishingly widespread in American culture. They don't like that fact but they noticed it too. And we did some statistical research to sort of demonstrate that recently. Some of you, I hope all of you, have read some of our work on the libertarian vote in which we found that about 15 or 20 percent of Americans give libertarian answers to a broad range of questions so that we can say they're not just conservatives, they're not just liberals, they give libertarian answers to sort of personal liberty and economic liberty questions, that sort of thing. And we did some other polling in which we found even bigger numbers. We asked people, would you describe yourself as fiscally conservative and socially liberal? 59% of Americans said yes to that. We asked other Americans, would you describe yourself as fiscally conservative and socially liberal, also known as libertarian, which obviously is going to reduce the number because a lot of people haven't even heard the word libertarian. You still got 44% who said yes to that. So somewhere between 15 and 59% of Americans we can consider to be on our side. Um, part of our job is to convince the 59% that in fact they are on our side, that they're not liberals, they're not conservatives, they are libertarians. Some people are moderate libertarians, some are more radical libertarians, but they all agree that we should be pushing in the direction of freedom in a lot of these areas. And that is why we do enjoy a lot of freedom here in America. And of course, I argued in the politics of freedom that modern America is in fact, in total, more free than ever before, or at least it was before Bush and Obama. It's a little more complicated question over the past 10 years. And that is thanks to the founders and the constitution they gave us and to the cantankerous individualist free enterprise revolutionary don't tread on me people who make up this country but we always face the Hillary's and the Huckabee's who think they could run our lives better than we can run them for ourselves and therefore we always have the challenge of responding to those people which is why the founders also told us that eternal vigilance is the price of freedom and I thank all of you for being part of that eternal vigilance. And in fact, there are millions, even tens of millions of Americans who do hold a broadly libertarian view of the role of government, but there are in any era very few of those people willing to devote 
their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to the cause of liberty. I have the honor of working every day in a building full of some of those few people, and many of and, 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 and too large a percentage of all the people in America who are willing to devote their lives and fortunes to their sacred to, to the cause of liberty are in this room right now. So thank you all for devoting that effort, that money, that time to the cause of liberty. David Bose is executive vice president of the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at cato.org.